I'm going to start out by whoever corrected me on getting the name wrong at the beginning of the baby dedication. I want to say thank you. I was just sitting here thinking that when I was younger, I didn't have uh, slips of the tongue that often. It seems to be getting worse as I get older. <laughs> I will tell you a story like this that I wish somebody would have spoke up. One of the first weddings I ever did, I got started, I think it was Gabe and Amber's wedding. And I'm doing my thing there, and they told me after the service, after it was all done, that I never had the congregation sit. They stood at the beginning to recognize, and they stood through the whole thing. And everybody was being polite, figuring must be that's the way you want it to be. And I want to welcome you into my world a little bit, that as I get older, there's going to be more slips of the tongue like that. And if you sit in the back and you realize that's not really what he wanted to say, and if I keep saying it, correct me. I'm not, I'm not put off by that. That's not you being holier than thou. That's like, thank you very much, because then it will get it ingrained in my mind the right way. Um, depending on your uh, church background, spiritual background, whatever, you may or may not be aware of the fact that we are in the season of what churches often call Lent. Okay? And depending on, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going off in the room right now when I bring, turn Lent. Some people, oh yeah, I remember that. And other people say, what's that? Okay. Um, it, like I said, many, many churches, you know, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, continues through, if I'm correct on this one, you can see my background's not really good with this, but it starts on Ash Wednesday and goes through to the Saturday before Easter, the Saturday of Easter weekend. Okay. And um, somebody may ask the question, is, is Lent biblical? Well, you're not going to find the term Lent. You're not going to find the command to do the things that go on in Lent. You say, so it's not biblical. Well, not really. Because you're also, if you look in the Bible, you will find several spots in the Scripture where God specifically told people to do certain things so that they would remember and to recall and to reflect, to point us towards things. And actually, Lent does that. The season of Lent. It's a season for reflection where, we, where we're encouraged, if you practice that, where we're encouraged to reflect on our own spiritual journey, but specifically not so self-centered, but to reflect specifically because it's all leading up to Jesus' death, the celebration of his death and his resurrection. And the encouragement is to reflect on what does that mean to me as a person? And what should my response be to that? It's, uh, uh, Lent is also a season for repentance because here's what often can happen. In the time of Lent, if, we were, if we're reflecting on the significance of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, what that means and what that requires of me in response to that, we might find ourselves in reflecting where God brings conviction that leads us to repentance. In other words, boy, I kind of have strayed a bit in this area. So it's this chance to reflect and allow God to speak, if, if need be, correction. We're a little adjustment and to repent from that. And Lent is also a season of recommitment. That after hearing from God and after repenting and realizing that maybe we are, we've gotten sidetracked or whatever, that we come to Him for forgiveness and we've repented and then recommitting to a new focus with Him. And actually it's my intent. You say, why didn't you start? Well, we had the message last week, which diverted that second last week, the idea of of as a growing church and the things that God's doing and calling us as soldiers to be at work and in, in, in laboring with him to uh, liberate people from the bondage to sin and slavery locally in our community. We talked a lot about that and our need for adding uh, spiritual leadership, elders and pastor. Um, 
I encourage you, please be praying about that, and that will run maybe in the background of this whole thing too, because I've got, I'm gonna, and you'll see in the closing today, it fits really well. Dovetail, today's message fits good with last week's. And reminding you, please keep that in prayer. Keep, keep praying for your, your church family. Keep praying for, for your church leadership right now as we work through the process of, of adding leadership in that. And there will be coming forward, and I'll give you more information in the next few weeks, um, there's going to be an opportunity for the congregation to chime in and have input into that process. Um, but I want to start today, and again, these things, again, like I did at Christmas time, um, I'm dedicating myself, we're going to find Lenten-type stuff in our weekly readings. You know why I can say that? Because the overall message in the Bible is the redemption, God's plan for the redemption of mankind. And that's why Jesus came. To redeem mankind so we shouldn't be surprised if we see these themes all the way through the scriptures and so we're going to look at one today um, I'm going to start out with this uh, scripture right here Lent, I'm done with that already right there second Corinthians 5 14 and 15 in this week's reading it says for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now there's a sense in which Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church and he's reflecting on basic, the basics of the gospel that Jesus Christ came, which we'll talk about in a minute, and died for all, and what that means. And, but I want to start with this idea, this idea that Christ's love compels. Paul used the word we or us, we're compelled. I don't know if he's talking to church in general or if he's specifically talking about those that were with him on this missionary journey. But anyhow, Paul and the companions that were with him, we'll use that as an example, they were compelled, which means they were obliged and bound to take action. They found themselves in a place in their, in, in, before the Lord where they absolutely had to do something. They were pushed to action. So what kind of action were they doing? If you look back a little bit further than that in, in verses 14 and 15 there, if you go back up three or four verses, you'll find out that the beginning of that thought process, one of those things is talking about how they were going from place to place and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul and his companions were compelled, obligated, bound, they felt, to give their entire lives to persuading people to repent and follow God, to come into relationship with God. They were compelled, they felt it was their duty to go wherever they could to try to convince people that following God was what, what they should do. They were compelled um, to go and offer spiritual freedom to people that they encountered. They were compelled to enter, like we talked last week, that battle, that spiritual battle to liberate people. So the message, if you recall from last week, the idea of the obligation or what God wants to do to liberate people, Paul and his companions, if they would have been here last week, would have yelled an amen, and they, if we would have allowed them to speak, they said, that's what we've been doing our whole life. That's what we've given our, our whole life to being, and they were compelled to do that thing. And my question is, and it was actually like this, the way they looked at it is when they, when they, when they would look at what Jesus had done for them and how God had interacted in their life and the instructions he had given them both in Scripture, but I also believe in personal revelation, they didn't feel they had any choice in the matter. That that's how strong that, that compilation or being compelled was. We have no choice but to do this. And Paul actually uses some of that language in other spots in the Scriptures. My question now for you and I, what about you and I? 
Are you and I compelled? Do we find ourselves compelled, pushed to action, to act on behalf of others? And I'm not just talking benevolent things like all that happens in our world, like giving to charities. I'm talking to act on the benefit of others, to bless them spiritually speaking, to release them spiritually, to pour into people spiritually speaking. I would lay out to you that you and I should also feel that same obligation or be compelled to act on behalf of others, spiritually speaking, just like Paul and his companions did. It's very easy in the culture, in the time that we live in, to stray in our hearts in this area, to not feel that and not act upon being compelled in such a way because our culture is so self-centered. It's all about me. And you know what happens? That creeps into the church. That all of a sudden now church is all about me and home group is all about me. And, and, and anything that we do is all about me. And that's why Lent is a good time looking into the things you see. Because there's one thing that Jesus Christ never did. It was never all about him. Right from the very beginning of agreeing with his heavenly father to come to earth, the only reason that he would be willing to do that, A, obedience to his father, which was about somebody else, and because he knew what needed to be done for mankind. It was all about others. And that's our model. And that's why it's good for us as we reflect on what Jesus did on the cross to point the arrow back at ourselves. How about me? Am I living all about me? Or am I compelled to act on behalf of others? Now going a step further, another C word here, is they were compelled because of their convictions. They said, because we are convicted. It says there, um, we, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. Convinced, we're con we have a conviction. What were they convinced of? Paul and his companions had come to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt in their own mind that Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, that He's alive, that He's in heaven, and that all the things that He came to do as Messiah on the full scale, they had come absolutely convinced that that was true. Which is really, really significant because it's not just something that they, they stumbled upon. The, that word of convinced or being convicted of something inside means you have taken the time to give thorough investigation and looking at all sides of that and taking in the information and then come to this conclusion. And that's true, that's, that was true about them. They had come to a confident conclusion that Jesus needed to come to earth to die for the sins of all men, which is very interesting considering, if you think of the significance, because of Paul. Think about what Paul was like before he came to Christ. Paul, who wrote this, who is compelled and convicted and pouring out his life even unto death, if you will, started out antagonistic towards Jesus. Did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And actually went to great lengths to try to punish people and arrest people who were worshipers of Christ. And yet now he says that I am convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. That he came to earth and he needed to come to earth to, to cleanse us from sin. You need to think about that for a second. A guy that was adamantly opposed, went to arresting people, threw the, the, they threw the cloaks at his feet when they were martyring and killing Stephen, a man of God, because he was a worshiper of Christ. That same man says, I'm convinced. I have looked at things. I have sought God, 
And this is the truth. It goes another level of significance for Paul and the others there. It's, it's lost sometimes because we're so far removed from the time. Not only did he investigate on his own, in that investigation, Paul would have had opportunity to speak to people who had walked and talked and sat under the ministry of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just something he read about like you and I. He could have easily, and I'm sure he did have, first-hand witness of people that had been with Jesus had seen what he had done. And he says, I'm convinced. And how deep was that conviction? Paul died because of it. Paul was killed because of his confession of Christ. That's a pretty strong conviction. That conviction was strong that Christ died for all. Let me quickly go through this. This is the main conviction that they held that drove everything. They were convinced that Jesus Christ died on account of man's sin. In a nutshell, if you want this, Jesus Christ, a perfect man, never sinned, took on the sin of mankind, willingly took that on as the perfect sacrifice. He took on, now let's bring it down, he took on my sin the awful things that I've done in life, the bad thoughts I've had, all that stuff. He took that on. And you know what? He took yours on as well. Think of the worst thing that you've done and all the other things that maybe you don't think are so bad. He took all that on. And because Jesus, a perfect man, when that sin came upon him, he was no longer clean. And the requirement of sin is something has to die for that. Romans tells us that the wages or the penalty of sin is death. Jesus died a painful death on a cross and satisfied, satisfied uh, the required penalty for all of mankind. And the interesting thing about this in Scripture, it's there. It's hard for us to grasp how God could do such a thing or how that all works. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of mankind's sin, both sins that occurred before he died, sins that were occurring while he died, and all the sins that man would ever occur afterwards. It was an all-inclusive. That's why it says he died for all. And when they say all, it goes all the way to Adam and Eve, and it will go all the way to the last baby that's born on planet Earth. The reality of the matter is every one of us in the room today, everybody listening to this message was enslaved at some point to sin. That means we were imprisoned. Going back to last week's, we were like the people in the prison camp. We were like the occupied country cowering in the corner. We were in need of liberation. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled those, the law's demands. See, the law demanded that there would be, there's a curse on those that are sinful. Jesus took that and took it to the cross. And as he died, what ended up happening is anybody that comes to him for forgiveness of sin is released from the law's demands regarding the sin. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, I'll personalize it, I'm free. Jesus liberated me from the habitual things in my past from the habitual thought patterns in my past that I still struggle with at times today. He freed me from those things so I don't have to walk that way anymore. Jesus 
is the outside force in my life that came to where I was in my prison cell, in my concentration camp, or cowering in the corner afraid to do anything because of what might happen. Jesus is the one that came to where I was and freed me. And you know what? He's done the same thing for you. But the question comes for all of us. Do I and do you walk in the freedom that Jesus bought? Have you and have I welcomed His perfect and all-powerful liberation from the sin in our lives? The unfortunate thing for many people is they hear the good news of Jesus Christ and there's a thing that registers in them and yet choose not to walk in the freedom that he's given. Choose not to embrace that. Choose not to accept that. And then there's others that accept it and realize that he may be free and they know all these things, but for whatever reasons, never walk in the fullness of the freedom that Jesus has given. They get to a certain level and, and just get to the spot where that's good enough. I'm better than I was. I'm more free than I was. And this is where we have people in the room that have been walking with Jesus for many, many years. They actually, yeah, there's people in the room today that are walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive, and I'm 52. And if you could interview them this morning, I'm sure they would say, Jesus is still liberating and still freeing them, and they're learning to walk in the freedom of Christ even now. And that's the intention, because the ultimate walking in freedom is the day that we cross from this life to the next, having been washed in Jesus' blood, where our faith becomes sight and we're free, totally free at last. It does not fully occur on this earth, although it should be a process of walking in more and more freedom regularly. And I want to challenge everybody that's listening this morning, don't be satisfied. And I'm not talking Western satisfaction where we always got to have more and there's never enough and all those things there. But the idea of recognizing in our relationship and our walk with God, he's always working to release us into new areas of freedom in our life and revealing areas that maybe we have straight. Now, there's another passage in the, in the uh, well, it's at the second part of that, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Let's take a look at this together. Very profound statement. It says, he died for all, which we just talked about. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Scripture also has a thing, and if we were crucified with Christ, in other words, we come to him forgiven, we were hung on the, it's as if we were hung on the cross with him, our sins were on him, it's as if we died, but it also says when he was then raised from the dead, on that first Easter Sunday morning, when he was raised from the dead, it says we too who died with him were also raised with him to new life. And Paul is addressing that when he says, and he died for all, which includes me and you, and if we come to him for forgiveness, it says those who live, that means that we're raised with him, that are walking in relationship with him, live with them. But the other thing that he says in that passage right there is although we're free, he bought our spiritual freedom, we're not to live for ourselves. We're not just supposed to live out of selfishness. And I want to say this, not only is that true, but I want to give you a fact right here that if we continue after we've come to Christ for forgiveness, if we continue to live for self with selfish motivations, it's the very thing that will hinder and thwart our walking in the true freedom of Christ. The way to true freedom of Christ is this idea of becoming free spiritually 
but not living for ourselves anymore, which I'll develop as we continue on here. Paul tells us that in our freedom, there should be a drastic change in the way that we walk out life. Before we came to Christ, we lived totally for self, out of selfish motivation. After we come to Christ, we should increasingly be walking not for ourselves, but for Him who died for us. I want to go as far as to say this, is that we once were enslaved to Satan and enslaved to sin, needed a liberator. Jesus comes, we come to Him, we're liberated, and we walk in freedom, but in that freedom, we make another choice. And you know what that is? To walk right back into slavery again. But not slavery to sin because we make bad choices or because we're, we're, we're dabbling in the things of our past, but slavery to Jesus Christ. That no longer do I call my shot, call the shots. And slavery, I realize, is a strong word. You say, Pastor, well, maybe you should use the word servant because it's a little easier to palate. But the message throughout Scripture is that we are slaves to Christ. And I know that has a dark past and a dark history in our world, but it's trying to say this, that, that he calls the shots totally and completely. The fortunate thing is, as our master, you will not find a more loving, caring, compassionate master who has your best interest in mind, always. The best example of this is in the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bible this morning, Turn to Exodus chapter 21. I want to read something to you. It says, when God was giving the law to Moses about his instruction for the children, his people, the children of Israel back then, I know we don't live under the law today, but it's interesting what was in the law there. It's definitely a picture. It's definitely a picture for us today. Hebrews chapter 21, starting with verse 2, says this. No, Exodus. The reason I see that, you know, I see, thank you, because I'm looking at my book here and it says Hebrew servants is the headline. So somehow in my mind it just goes to Hebrews. And I know it's going to get worse. Oh, Lord, help me. Help, help you guys so you don't get confused. Okay? In Exodus 21, verse 2, it says this. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he's to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. Now that's a little hard for us to palate because that's Old Testament, that's Old Testament slave law. And I, I, don't, I don't have time to develop all that and how that works there. But it's going to make sense with what you hear next. That doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound fair, does it? Well, the guy goes free, but if the, if the, if the master gave her a wife, then... The, the, the woman and the children need to remain in slavery. But look what it says next. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free. You see what it's saying there? In other words, his family's there. His master is a good man and he wants to be there. And he makes that choice. This is what happens. It says, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him in the door Take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be a servant for life. And do you know what that means here? I've got a hammer right here. Big old hammer. And I don't have an awl at home. That's unfortunately in, the, in modern uh, power tool ages, awls are, have become more of a thing of the past. Now we have 
countersinking bits and we screw everything together and all that. But a nail will do the, do the point. So what that simply means is that servant, that slave, when it came at time and in the seventh year, he was to go free, totally free. You're good to go. You don't have to pay a cent. Here's your freedom. You can go off and do what you want. But the Bible tells us if he, in those years of service to his master, realizes, my master really loves me. And I may be a, a slave in term, but he's given me control of his household. He, it's just it's this great situation. And I want to serve him for the rest of my life. He tells his master that, and the master goes to the judges, and then they take the slave over to the doorpost. And as he gets wide of the doorpost, because they need some wood. They need some wood. And you know why they need the wood? So that he puts his ear, and I don't know if it's a one-person or a two-person or a three-person job. My kids always pick on me because i got really big earlobes. Now you're all going to look at me. i got big earlobes like that. So you probably wouldn't need somebody because I probably against the edge there. And what they would do then is they'd take that nail, stick it right there against the edge, and step back with a hammer, and they've got it in there, the wall, picture the thing there, and then bang! And you know what happened. That all does what? It goes through the earlobe and into the wall, and the servant, if he's really tough, doesn't do anything, but most likely kind of winces. But he did it willingly. He did it willingly. And then I'm assuming after that's done there, they put a ring. That's why we pierce, right? To put a ring. And that ring was proof that he had chosen to be a slave for life to his master. Sounds gruesome, doesn't it? Nobody was going to flippantly do that, were they? You'd have to consider that knowing what you were going to go through. But it was worth it. It was worth it to them. You see... Just like the law back then said they were free to go, free to walk away, they had freedom, Jesus has indeed freed every one of us, freed us from the bondage of sin. But you know what happens every day, all over the world, over and over again, and will continue until the end of time and has been occurring ever since Jesus died on the cross, men and women everywhere choose, choose in their newfound spiritual freedom to become a slave to Christ. And if you will, it's like saying again to them, take me to the doorpost, Jesus. Put that all through my ear. Put a ring in because I'm yours forever. You and I should, I'm not going to say might, or have a choice to, I'm going to say you and I should choose to be enslaved to Jesus. Why? First off, out of our love for him, but even more than that, because of his intense love for us. And the second thing is this, because of our intense love for our family and Jesus' intense love for our family. You see, Jesus is the perfect person, the perfect being, to be in charge of my life and to be in charge of your life. I'm going to tell you right now, there is nobody. There is no power. There is no entity. There is no pattern of thinking. There is nothing on the face of the earth that can even come close to 
Jesus' ability and being perfectly suited to be in charge of someone's life. Say, we're in the United States are not very good at having somebody else be in control of us or in charge. We even talk about it. That guy's got control issues. But we try to exercise that. Heaven forbid, when it comes to spiritual speaking, that we have control issues. Because I'll tell you, you ever get to the spots like you get sick of, we, always, we have a word for it now too, adulting is hard. Well, wouldn't it be nice to not to have to worry so much about adulting anymore because somebody else is calling the shots and all I've got to do is be obedient to him. And that's what Jesus offers us. And he gives a lot in here about exactly what it means to walk with him as a, as a slave. I know it's my heart's cry. I can't speak for you this morning. And I'll tell you right now, if that's what it took, I'd walk over right now and I'd let anybody in the room. If that's what, if that's what it meant for me to be marked for Jesus to be a slave for life, I'd say, bring it on. Do both of them if you need to. Because in my own life, there's been nothing more powerful, more freeing. This is a crazy thing. Actually, one of my college professors wrote a, wrote a book, The Upside Down Kingdom. There's nothing more freeing than being a slave to Jesus Christ. And I don't know how to explain that in any other words other than the fact, if you will do it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. There's nothing more freeing than being a slave of Jesus Christ. And my heart's cry, and I hope it's yours too, is that I cry out, Jesus, pierce my ear as a mark and put whatever marker you need to put in that and I'll be your servant for life. Paul was absolutely convinced about that. And he was compelled to tell us that. That Jesus liberated us, and in that liberation, we should commit to being his slave or his servant for life. So I want to close with a few questions. How are you doing at this idea of being a slave or a servant of Jesus? You still living for self in areas? I still have to repent, and that's why reflection is a good thing right now, and repentance and recommitment. And as you do that and reflect and God reveals areas in my life and in your life where we're still living for self that's not in keeping with somebody who is a slave of Christ in obedience to Him, we need to take those to Him, ask for forgiveness, and then repent and recommit to doing that. Last week we talked about, asked the question, are you and I willing to commit to be soldiers in the battle to help other people be spiritually liberated? That engaging in that battle as servants, we're also soldiers, that's part of becoming a servant or a slave of Jesus. It's his plan. If you want to know what it means to serve in the household of Jesus as a slave, it means to take on your armor and walk daily for the life on behalf and pour your life out for behalf of others in hopes that they will become liberated out of sin, that Jesus can touch them. There's another scripture in 2 Timothy follow up from last week it says this 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 Paul saying this join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but rather tries to please his commanding officer question comes back again is will you and I join along with Paul and literally millions of other people throughout history that suffered as soldiers of Jesus Christ 
And they were willing to do it because of what Jesus did on the cross because they had signed their life away. They had signed their life away. It's like not waiting to be drafted, but going down to the draft board and signing up for service. Going to the, uh, going to the doorpost and saying, please pierce my ear as proof that I'm your servant. Will you and I not just join, but will we work then at being good soldiers and not being entangled in the things of the world? And I don't know much about military service other than what I've read, but I know it's changed over the years. I can remember as a boy and how you basically signed your life away if you went into the military because all that other stuff came first before anything else in life, including your family. Now, I think that's softened a little bit over the years. But as a boy, I remember that being talked about over and over again, how they owned you. Will you and I refuse to be entangled in the things of the world? Not just because they're, they're evil, but sometimes it's even being entangled in things that there's nothing morally wrong with, but because they keep us from doing the things that Jesus wants us to do as his servants. Instead, will we make it our goal and objective to please Jesus and Jesus alone in the way that we live our life. And you know what? Committing ourselves to be pleasing to Jesus above and beyond all else is going to require difficult choices. Just like we talked last week, those guys that got on the boats in England to cross the English Channel to storm the beaches in Normandy required some really difficult choices. And they probably thought that the training they went through was difficult, but you know how tough it must have been to go in under fire, and then when the thing comes down, and to go into, go into the shore while everybody around you is getting mowed down. And there's dead people in the water, and the water's turning red because of human blood. Can you imagine the sacrifice, a willing sacrifice to you say, well, they didn't have a choice at that point. They made their choice before, and I've talked to military people. Yes, there's a, a state of fear in those battle situations, but because of your training, it's all shut off, and you do what you're trained to do. Are you and I willing to become like that in our service of Jesus Christ where we shut off all of our human wants and needs long enough to be obedient to the things that Jesus calls us to do. It requires sacrifice. It requires hardship. And there may be a day in our life where it even costs us our life. But there have been many before us that have died for the cause of Christ. And there's nothing more noble than we can do. But you know what? As we talked last week, it's all worth it. Like I told you, um, is Jerry here this morning? Jerry shared with me last week about his grandfather that liberated one of those prison camps. And I'll share this. It's a powerful thing. One of the officers came in and says, guys, get in the truck. I want you to see what you've been fighting for. And drove them through. And they saw the atrocities. They saw the remains. They saw all those things. And realized that their fighting and their sacrifice, the danger they put themselves, was not without cause. And you know what? It's not without cause that we sacrifice to see others liberated. It's not all about me. The most noble thing we can do in Mature in Christ is to forget about ourselves long enough to realize that there are people that need Jesus in a desperate way. Will I go through discomfort? Will I, am I willing to go through ridicule and maybe make me fun, whatever it is that, might, that one or two at least can hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Are we willing 
to do all that and in the end realize it is worth it because Jesus will welcome us and say well done, that he's proud of us and so that we can actually have the experience of seeing somebody come to Christ and see their life change before our eyes. And I want to close totally. We're going to close differently this morning. Usually at this point, I'd ask Jeff to come up and he would share and then we'd do a, a song and there'd be people. I'm not going to do any of that this morning because actually what we're asked to do in this is something that, frankly, it's something that needs to be done between you and God. And it doesn't need somebody else. This is a situation that doesn't, not that there's anything wrong with prayer, because those are all fine, but in the end, what it all boils down to is you and I need to make a personal commitment or recommitment, whatever you want to say, that I'm willing to be your servant and your slave. I want to be your slave for life because I know that there's nothing better, no clearer way to walk in true freedom on this earth than to be the slave of Jesus Christ. And so there's a song that goes along with the passage we read about Pierce Meyer. It's an old one. It's an old one. And that's going to play. But even if you don't hear a single word, the question is, we're going to take the time quietly before the Lord this morning. However long that song goes, which isn't very long. It's a very short one. They can probably sing it through two or three times, but it's going to be done quick. The idea there is, my encouragement was you, hopefully during the message, there's been some personal reflection that's gone in my life and your life. And then it went beyond that. Maybe there's some spots in that where you realize that I have strayed or I've never made that commitment to Christ before. Now is your time to talk to Jesus and saying, I repent, forgive me. And then that recommitment or a commitment for the first time that I want to walk. I want to walk as your slave. I want to walk in right standing with you, Jesus, the rest of my life. I want you to call the shots and I want to be obedient to you. And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to, they're going to play that song. I encourage you, you talk to God in whatever way works for you. He'll hear. He'll understand the cry of your heart. And he'll do what needs to be done there. And then I'll close this in prayer in a second.